in three weeks we turned into these feral animals and you forget how to behave in public you know you, f- <laughs> you forget you don't just sort of shovel food in, into your mouth welcome to my podcast spirit and spice i'm gilly bashan a writer and broadcaster with a passion for food not just the food on my plate but the people and the stories behind it Look at that, we've got a sickle moon and there is just that dark shadow moving along the track. That is Lee Craigie coming to my house on her bike. This has been such deep snow and I don't often get visitors of any form because people won't come in this, you know, they can't get vehicles up my track. But she's come on her bike and... All the way from where? All the way from Inverness. You must be knackered. Hey, you made it all the way. Did you ever doubt it? No, we just worried about the track, that was all. Is this actually Jimmy? No, this isn't. This is Iona. Right, okay. This is a road bike. We saw you on the horizon with our binoculars. (laughs) I would have given you a Mooney if I'd known. (laughs) Is that when you got the binoculars out? out, You know, when you live out here, you're cheap entertainment. Yeah, you can't get much of that around here, though. Gilly's got a question for you. I do. The very first thing I thought I should offer you, because you've had your journey here, is maybe a shower or a bath. Would that be very insulting? A big cup of tea, homemade flapjacks, and a good old bath. I'm not a one for washing normally, but you put it in such a (laughs) nice way but I think I might just have to take you up on it well tuck in guys and I must say Lee you clean up well (laughs) (laughs) thanks very much I wonder what state was I in when I arrived I got a bit of a fright when I saw you on the drive (laughs) we worked out that we've not seen each other for more than 20 years I think it must be something like that we know each other through a haze of alcohol probably (laughs) Which we seem to be continuing quite well. Yeah. So, yeah. But you were both in outdoor education, though, weren't you, at that stage? Were you not doing I that? was doing the different course, but you were doing yeah, outdoor education. Yeah, you were education. on the wrong course, weren't you? So yeah. it was, it was, a, it was a, a community um, education degree, but there were three different facets. You could be art, outdoor ed, or sport. Mm-hmm. And Katie was sport, and I was outdoor ed. Um, and then the artists were spawning about in moon boots. I think when, it's, when you do... Uh, a degree that is also like your passion then quite often that just sort of spills off into your hobby and then you do something else to, to make money but I don't know I never really got my head around the idea why you wouldn't do a job that you loved I can't imagine um, I can't imagine spending my nine to five doing something I hated so that I could so that I could live in the evenings or the weekends it's yeah. So what is nine to five for you now? <laughs> I don't have a nine to five. <laughs> I feel so lucky to be able to do the stuff that that I do. I just get to um, explore and tell stories about it and meet cool people. On your website, you're a nomadic storyteller and a bike adventurer. I mean, that is a pretty cool title. <laughs> I bet the careers advisor didn't find that on their list. No, they said that I was going to be an accountant. That's quite a title, isn't it? I've had to change that recently, though, because of, I have actually got a bit of a proper job as well as the nomadic storyteller. Mm. I'm, not, I'm also, wait till you hear this, I'm the Active Nation Commissioner for Scotland. What does that actually mean? That's a good question. I'm not sure yet. <laughs> Very early in the post. Yeah, it's a ministerial position. Oh my um, goodness! And the and the idea is, I'm just I'm tr- I'm supposed to inspire more people to to get active. Um, 
to get people in Scotland more active, specifically with active travel in, in mind. So the idea of just integrating activity into your everyday life rather than it being, you know, about sport or, you know, it being about sort of formal gym work. It's so exciting when you drill down the idea of putting people first and not vehicles or um, or money first, you know, when you really think about what it is that you value. So it's as tied a into the environment as well, is it? Absolutely. Trying to encourage people to take responsibility for their own health, for the environment, for their communities. You know, as soon as you take cars out of a community space and you've got, you know, this car free environment that kids can suddenly interact in, and it's harder for kids, I think, now to, to go out there and explore and take risks, and everyone's so afraid that they'll get hit by a car or... I was just thinking when you were saying, you know, trying to encourage people to be active, they just need to live where Gilly lives, especially in the winter. I have to ski in and out. I mean, there's there's no way around that. Mm. And, and my kids have done that all their lives, you know, so they're actually expert because when I say ski in and out, we're just on cross-country skis. Mm. And cross-country skis are, are thin and don't do what you want to do when you go downhill. But my kids do flips on them and go backwards and all sorts. And I go down, particularly if it's ice, I'm going down, oh my God, I better not fall. (laughs) And actually, if you go too fast, the only way to stop is to fall. That's case in point. Like Your kids have grown up being able to just, that's just the norm, having to ski to the bottom of the drive. yeah, three miles they had to ski a day. You know, when it was beautiful moonlit nights, it was just glorious. And we'd see foxes, badgers, deer, oh, wow. everything, and just the sky, and we would just stop and gaze at it. So, yeah, there's a, mm. lot of, a lot of beauty in it. But to get back to the role of sort of encouraging people to be active, mm. I watched your short documentary called Escape. Oh, yeah. And that was you cycling the Caledonian Way. Mm. And what struck me about that was that you mentioned that when you were 13 and you were at school you know you would sit and gaze out the window and you would long to be out there and actually going on your bike was a real feeling of freedom Mm. i Mm. could imagine with the places that you go Mm. it must be one of the the loveliest feelings oh absolutely and and the way i travel by bike so I strap everything to my bike that I need to go for days. You know, I've got a sleeping bag on there and a little stove and um, and How I much can, food can you put in there? You, so you can. So I was in Kyrgyzstan in the summer and the longest that I went was five days. So as long as you can resupply with water, you can. You know, if you, and you're clever about what you take with you. You can. You yeah. You can go for five six days and there's nothing more liberating. Like the idea of being able to travel completely self-supported. Um, and knowing that if something goes wrong physically or with your bike you can get yourself out of trouble is so liberating, so empowering and it just makes the rest of life possible, you know so if you travel 500 miles without seeing another soul and you've done that completely self-propelled you know, just using your own legs and your own lungs um, and you've kept yourself fed and warm at the end of that you're like, wow, well if that's possible then what else is possible? And what else is possible? And what else is possible? And you get caught on this conveyor of what's possible for you physically and emotionally, but also what else is out there. You know, the world is huge and exciting. There's obviously that inner journey that you're mm-hmm. doing, you know, where you're exploring your own possibilities mm-hmm. and um, and learning about yourself. Mm-hmm. But do you learn about some of the places that you go to as well? You know, like, you know, Central Asia. Do you spend any time with the people or are you always just cycling by? I think as I've got 
older that has become more and more important to me is the stopping and the taking time and, and meeting people. I was in Kyrgyzstan for about six weeks. I was out there to do a, a race. So the way I travel by bike is it's super lightweight and you go as fast as you can and you know these races fully self-supported eat and sleep when you like but the clock doesn't stop and the idea of going to Kyrgyzstan and straight into a race where I just get my head down and I barrel through these incredible nomadic communities and I don't ever speak to anyone or accept their hospitality felt so wrong to me that I went out for the month before so that I could travel and have and engage and have those stories and stop and and not hold on really tightly to an agenda because I think that's when the magic happens, isn't it? And you you stop and you get... I had this philosophy that I would... Whenever anybody offered me any sort of experience, I would accept. And sometimes that went badly wrong, but more often than not, you know, you just... You learn so much about... You get about taken in by an entire family in that kind of a situation, don't you? Exactly, yeah. What, what kind of experiences did you have? I was in the middle of absolutely nowhere at one of the most remote parts in um, in the Tianxian Mountains and I'd had like three river crossings and I was soaking and the sky was like becoming metallic and I was thinking, oh no, this is going to be a really grim, uncomfortable night and I was starting to get a little bit of that sort of fear of being out there on my own and I was cold and wet and thinking I was completely on my own and then I just saw this little wisp of smoke coming up from behind this little uh, re-entrant and it turns out the entire yurt community of that whole valley were in that one yurt so they'd all gathered in that one yurt there must have been I don't know 25 people in there with kids and, and, and everything and the head of the of the community rushed out and said you mu-, they were quite drunk you must come in and drink vodka with us. And I was like, oh, do I really want to do this? You know, I just want to, I want to get warm and look after myself and not engage and, you know. But they dragged me in and as soon as that door opened and I saw this, this spread of people and food and um, smiles and I just sat at the head of the of the table and they gave me the sheep's head and they they treated me. You were the guest of honour. I honor. was the guest of honour, mm-hmm. yeah. And they were so lovely and kind and before I knew it I had like a bowl of broth, fermented horse milk and vodka in front of me and they were all like pressing all three on me at once. That was an example of the evening not going wrong. It didn't go wrong that evening. It was brilliant. And I learned so much about everybody there. We didn't have a word in common. I, I couldn't speak Kyrgyz. But you find a way, don't you? You do. Yeah, yeah especially do. when it's families and food. When What did go wrong? <laughs> <laughs> what did go wrong? Well, there's a drink problem in, in Kyrgyzstan. There's a lot of traditional Kyrgyz people and and older white Russian men who, since the Russian economy crashed, you know, they, they, they don't have very much money and um, and here I was sort of passing through, feeling quite uncomfortable on quite an expensive bike and uh, and I was a woman on my own and, um, and although most of the time I felt absolutely fine with that, occasionally I would meet um, quite a drunk a Russian man. The Kyrgyz people never. There was there was that Islamic hospitality extended to me wherever I went as a solo female, wherever I went. But the occasional drunk Russian guy just yeah, just took a little bit of a little bit of negotiation to get out of some of those situations. And does anybody else on the race do that kind of thing? I think the majority of people that do the sort of stuff that I do, race like that and 
They do have a real willingness to to engage with with the cultures and the people that they're passing through, and yet I don't I don't always see it. Yeah, I do sometimes cringe a little bit at the idea of these Western travellers and their fancy bikes coming into communities and and not taking the time and pausing enough to have that exchange. Mm-hmm. So I, I think there's a real mix of people that do these self-supported races. When you're actually in it and you're racing, it's a, it's a very introspective, inward-looking thing. And it's all about you and your sort of physical experience with that landscape. Other people don't tend to feature that, that much. I certainly couldn't have raced the Silk Road mountain race unless I'd been out there first and taken the time. To get back to the actual way that you function in a race, I mean, you say that you can take enough food with you for five days. Mm. Was the race five days? No, well, <clears throat> the race was as long as you allowed it to be. So it's a set distance and the clock starts when you leave Bishkek and it finishes when you get to the end and the race is like 2,000 kilometres long and so if you can ride that in five days then great <laughs> But um, then what could you restock on? Because you know it's a culture that lives a lot on sheep's heads if you, as you've just said but mm. horse meat and mutton mm. and horse milk, how do you stock up? Are, are there little shops that have things that people recognise? It was challenging for a lot of people, you can always find somewhere that will sell you dried noodles <laughs> And a lot of people just existed on dried noodles. A lot of people left Bishkek with foods that they already understood, used those to get as far as they could. But you're never going to do well in something like that unless you can learn to adapt and be flexible and, you know, just accept what is out there. I don't think that I'm any particularly gifted endurance athlete. I just seem able to eat anything. <laughs> <laughs> And well, that, that always helps. And that helps talking of which, keep tucking in. Oh, but this is not just anything. Gilly, this is amazing. What is this that we're eating? Well, that's just a, a savoury baklava just to munch on for just now. Mm. You know, you're, you're talking about the solo racing that mm. you do now. But when you started, you were doing a different type of racing, weren't you? Mm. Your elite racing when you were younger. I don't quite know how that happened. I was never supposed to be a bike racer. Ever. Like, when Katie and I were at university, it was all about just enjoying being in wild places. It was all about the adventure and the exploration, wasn't it? Mm. And then I just, by accident, I entered a race. I was, quite, I was quite old, I was like 26. And I entered a race and I won it. And I was a bit surprised at that. Because I guess what I'd done is I'd spent a lifetime of not being competitive particularly, but just building resilience and strength and fitness doing the stuff that I just love to do but not being focused and then I won that race and everyone started thinking well what else could you do you know if you got scientific about it and you drilled right down and so the next 10 years were a really interesting experiment in that where I where I did just get more and more and more scientific and raced cross-country mountain bike which is essentially an hour and a half race very prescriptive you know it was right down to weighing my food and you know watching my heart rate on every training ride like the absolute opposite of the reason that I got into doing the stuff in the outdoors in the first place no freedom absolutely none Mm. essentially what I'd done is I designed my life to remove all freedom (laughs) and I sort of knew it at the time but But I was also also winning so that must have also developed a new type of hunger because you became a champion in 2009 didn't you the Scottish 
uh, champion, but then you also in 2013 were the British mountain Awards, bike yeah. champion, and Gosh. 2014 you represented Who's Scotland in the Commonwealth <laughs> Games. That I suppose would have been a different type of hunger. It's so hard to step off a conveyor when you're still getting better at something. Like, how could I have ever stepped off that and always wondered how good I could have been? That was what I just kept thinking, I have to keep going, I have to do this for another year because I've, st- I've still not achieved my potential. And yeah, it's it's hard, like the structure is, is, I sometimes feel a bit like my wings have been clipped and yet there's something as well that's really safe and comforting about just knowing that every single day I was like, well, today I do a five-hour ride and then, you know, and that, and that just gives you a structure to your day. Did you have sponsorship for all of that then? Yeah, I had a very, very kind partner. <laughs> and yeah, I did get some, some backing from Scottish Cycling and I could basically, I could live for free. Um, so I wasn't earning any money doing it, but I could live for free and train full time, which is such a privilege. So what flipped it for you then? I think it was just that. So I wanted to bow out while I wasn't, still sort of hanging on and starting to be beaten and sort of scrabbling about and and just sort of hanging on to this life that had played its course and so I set my sights on the Glasgow Games on the on the Commonwealth Games I was thinking if I can get there and I can race that in front of a home crowd and experience that then surely there's going to be nothing better than that in my career and um, and I think I was right So I had the race of my life that day and the next two weeks, you know, in the athlete's village and and, and all of that, just being so proud of my home city. And that was that was probably the best two weeks of my life. And to bow out on that just felt so appropriate. What I didn't know, I suppose, was that the the adjustment period was going to be hard because I was such a mega high. I spent a year coming down from that and getting quite low and having to redefine myself and figure out well who I was if I wasn't a bike racer that trained for five hours a day and weighed her pasta but fortunately there's light at the end of that tunnel and there's always another challenge I think we should drink to that guys yes you know but for for that amazing achievement in 2014 (laughs) but also for being able to come out of it and do something different. Was the achievement being able to recognise that it was time to let go or was the achievement <laughs> racing in that race? I, I, I sometimes wonder which bit I should I, be more proud of. But maybe just both. When I was in the GB squad, I was like by far the oldest in British cycling. Room. They're quite, I mean, they're very good at what they do. One mould fits all. Mm. And if you don't fit into their mould, there's plenty of other kids that want to do what those people that were around me want to do and so it was almost like well if you can't hack it then off you go it was almost like they would gather all these eggs and chuck them at a wall and see which ones don't break and that was really hard for me to watch I think Um, and I I just didn't let them throw me at a wall I guess I knew enough about myself that I I, I wasn't going to go down that route I knew what worked for me and I was a bit long in the tooth to be told what to do. I didn't have to toe the line, like the worst that could happen is they'd boot me out and then that, that was all right. I <laughs> just go back to what I was doing before, but some people, they want it so, so much and and I don't know how ethical that is really. The world of elite sport, there's a dark side to oh, it. Yeah. Talking about kids, you also set up the Velocity Cafe in Inverness 
along with psychotherapy. Yeah, so psychotherapy was before Velocity. So when I first moved up to Highland, I worked as a school counsellor. So I worked one-to-one with... Well, you know, you're trained as a psychotherapist, aren't you? Right, In yeah. amongst all your cycling <laughs> accolades. I always loved that. Like, that sort of kept my feet on, on the ground, the work, working with young people. They just teach you stuff every single day, don't they? But what does psychotherapy actually do? So psychotherapy was my attempt to engage with the young people who, like the one-to-one talking therapy stuff wasn't working with. So like the 14, 15-year-old boys who would come into a one-to-one room with me and, what, nothing wrong, I'm fine, yeah, I get a bit angry don't want to talk about it and those guys we were missing you know they, and they just wouldn't come to school or they just didn't mm-hmm. want to talk and, and why should they <laughs> to a stranger in a one to overheated one-to-one room in a guidance space um, and I was racing at the time and um, they were intrigued by that they were like all oh, right so you're a mountain biker so I suggested that um, to the council that I take them mountain biking and instead of sitting in the one-to-one room and that went really well because suddenly you're in a position where you're not making eye contact with somebody. You know, so it's not about me grilling them for information. It becomes non-verbal, and it just becomes about this mutually trusting relationship where we're just, you know, we're outside and enjoying each other's company. And um, I'm not always telling them what to do, and and then that trust automatically gets established. And then, you know, the therapeutic effects of being outdoors and physical settles them. And then, inevitably, on the drive back to school, where we're both facing forwards and our bikes are in the back of the van um, and we're not looking at each other, that's when it would all start to to be discussed. And, I mean, I understand the therapeutic effects of being outdoors and physical, so so why would that not be the same for the 14-year-old boy that was having some difficulties and then over and above that there was the conversations that we could have once we'd established that relationship it wasn't formal therapy but it was therapeutic you also now run a completely different thing called the adventure syndicate you're now joining with other women who are huge achievers one of them has just completed the the, the world round the world race yeah so my my um, colleague and recent co-director, in fact, of the Adventure Syndicate, Jenny Graham, has just broken the women's round the world record. Yeah, 125 days to tra- travel more than 18,000 miles. Incredible effort. Yeah, she's some girl, <laughs> and she's an example of uh, just what I was talking about before. You know, when you start on a conveyor, and you're like, oh, mm-hmm. what else is possible? What else is possible? Um, but I think the Adventure Syndicate happened as a result of us all being a little bit tired of the solo conquering male hero stories. It just feels a little bit like in the adventure world there's people that quite like to put themselves on pedestals and say look what I can achieve if I beat and tame and and show my strength and power I can conquer others and we sort of wanted to say yeah but look what is still possible if you work collaboratively and you communicate and you cooperate and you're actually kind to yourself and you look after yourself while you're doing this stuff. And endurance sport, I think, especially endurance cycling, really lends itself to that way of thinking. So we wanted to showcase a different sporting model. And uh, uh, yeah, I never fail to be amazed at the power of collaboration. 
And that's what I hope the Adventure Syndicate shows. And I think it's a, it's a power of collaboration between women, and I, I think women are actually very good at that. But you were saying earlier, where do you go with this sense of achievement? You have another film out, which is called Divide, and that is on the Tour Divide. Now, the Tour Divide, you know the miles, I don't, but <laughs> 2, it's... 2,745, <laughs> to be exact. <laughs> so it's from Banff, Canada, mm. I just point out, Banff in Canada, all the way down to Mexico. Mm. And it's a race. It's a race. The film, I may tell you, Katie, has been accepted by the Banff Mountain Film Festival. Aha. So it will be doing the global circuit. Here's a race. There is a very set route, but things can go wrong. Oh, all the best adventures never go according to plan. Mm-hmm. Isn't that always the case? Yeah. Yeah. They certainly leave you stories to tell anyway. Yeah, that's for sure. <laughs> well, the true divide is, is, ve- is very long. Um, and it goes through very remote places and you're having to rate, like if you want to do it fast, and we did, Ricky Cotton, I wanted to do it fast, although that was never the objective. The objective was always to make the film. So we were gonna race it, but we were always gonna self-film as we went. On iPhones and GoPros. Just an iPhone and a GoPro. Yeah. Yeah, because you can't can't take a filmmaker with you. Mm. You know, you're, you're traveling, you're riding for 20 hours a day and you're sleeping in ditches and You've got to keep that momentum going. So the only way to do it was to self-film. But in doing so, I definitely put myself under more stress than if I'd just been racing it alone. It was a challenging route anyway. It went very high. Um, I wasn't getting much rest. And then I had a bit of a knee niggle that's, that started. I, I've got a bit of a bad knee anyway. So I started taking ibuprofen for that. And um, I think because my body was under so much stress anyway... Uh, I've researched this since. I didn't know this was going to happen, but my whole, my whole body just inflated. So I went into like an anaphylactic reaction from the ibuprofen. Um, and I was at altitude at the time. I was at, at 3,000 metres in Wyoming and I looked like somebody had just inflated me with a pump. I was like the Michelin man. Gosh, I didn't oh. realise that can happen. And how did you in. deflate? I hitched to Jackson... And I got a steroid, a series of steroid injections. The food thing, I mean, you would not have approved, Gilly, like the spread that you've put on here. You can't imagine how our diet varied from what is in front of us right now. I mean, we're basically eating from gas stations. The crappest food you can just be euphoric over when you're, you know, you need 10,000 calories a day to keep your body moving. Food just becomes your motivator. So when you're actually racing, you're still quite conscious of getting in those calories, and but when you're not racing, you just are an absolute monkey and eat and drink anything. Is that the way it works with you? <laughs> those races, those bikepacking races, are it's carnage. You eat everything and anything you can get your hands on. You don't think about what it is you're putting into your body. Normally, I think about you know in my everyday life, I I uh, I eat what I like, but I generally want to put good things in my body like that's what I crave I don't crave junk food but on the tour divide honestly we were eating like frozen burritos from petrol stations and what eating them while they're still frozen still frozen disgusting Mm. it was Mm. absolutely foul (laughs) and that and that's not that 24 Mm. hours would go by and all we'd eaten was chocolate you know Mm. family-sized bags of M&Ms it was bad it was really bad it's an immersive wilderness experience you're so focused on 
just what is going on in your body and the immediate environment you're in, your senses are heightened, you know, you experience every smell and sound and taste, you're like, you're hypersensitive. And then you come back into, you know, a city or a house and you're, you're completely out of it. Like in, in three weeks, we turned into these feral animals. And then, and you forget how to behave in public. You know, you you forget <laughs> that you don't you don't just sort of shovel food in, into your mouth, and you don't just wee where you want. And you know, you need to retrain yourself. And and the idea of just having like a fridge just there, it takes, it's exciting. It takes a fair bit of getting your head around again, and you have to properly sort of reintegrate yourself to society. The one thing that you love to do almost as much as riding your bike is to talk about it (laughs) and I have seen you on a TED talk which I I actually refused to do a a TED talk I was terrified I did watch yours and it was amazing and I felt that you maybe gained a lot of comfort from being on the stage with Jimmy your bike Mm. who I was really sorry we didn't meet today but Jimmy Presumably named after Jimmy Shand. That's right. Yes. I did arrive on Iona Shand. So that is all. That's also a Shand. But then there is a company called Shand, isn't there, that makes bikes. So the road bike and my mountain bike. Right. But Jimmy Shand, he's not very well at the moment. Right. He's a little bit of love. Well, you did arrive on stage though at the TED Talk in Glasgow on Jimmy. I did. Is it like you've almost got somebody holding your hand? (laughs) Like a prop. Yeah, I do feel really just, I feel like I've come home when I sit on the saddle. Um, I guess because I've spent quite a lot of time there, it just feels right. Um, the TED Talk was terrifying. It really was. You didn't look terrified. Did I not? No, I was. You, you looked so comfortable. Gosh. One of the things that was interesting was how when things are getting quite tough, you just feel like a hug from your mum. Mm. What is it that you draw your strength from? Is it is it friends and family? Is it home comforts? Is it the idea of at the end of this I'll have soft pillows and a nice oh, cup of tea? Or... Can't go there. Yeah, if you start thinking about oh what's it going to be like at the end, you'll just stop. You can't let yourself go there. You must remain in the moment. That's why I do it because I'm. It's so immediate. I am so in the moment. I, you know when it's going right. It's that it's meditation in motion. I am so, so connected to myself and what's going on around me. And and then it's not to say that that's not really, really hard as well. You know, at like three in the morning when you've got 140 miles under your belt and you've still got another 70 to go before you're allowed to sleep or before you can... Allowed. I set my own rules, but, you know, you set yourself these little goals. And we've got this thing in the Adventure Syndicate where... Um, I think it was Sarah Uton or Emily Chapel that immediately that that initially um, dreamt this up, but this idea of an invisible peloton. So you know you know the pelotons in in the Tour de France. You've got all these mm-hmm. hundreds of guys all together mm-hmm. and sharing sharing uh, the head of the race so that everyone else gets gets drafted. And you basically the people at the back get sucked along while the people at the front break the wind. And so we dreamt up this notion that when things get really bad, you can think of your invisible peloton, and those are all the other women in your life or in the adventure syndicate or not women, but just people in your life that would shelter you from the wind. You know, for for example, when I've just, I've looked at a hill and thought there's just no way that I can do that, I've got nothing left. 
I'll break it down into stages and I'll conjure up each of those people in turn and I'll physically imagine them along with me, just in front of me, breaking the wind and I'll match their pace and I'll think about what we would speak about and I'll consider the encouraging words that they might say and and then when that conversation dries up in my head I'll conjure somebody else up and then they'll go to the front of the peloton and they'll take me to the top of the hill. But I think that's generally not a model that is adopted in sport, is it? It's like, no, drive, conquer, beat, defeat, win. You know, and it's almost the opposite of that. What we're saying there is, no, look after yourself, take care of yourself, listen to your body, conjure up the people who love you and that will take care of you and draw on their strength and their spirit and together you'll get to the top of the hill. You're talking about an internal journey there as well. It's again, you're, you're fighting with any weakness within yourself and keeping yourself going. But you actually physically experienced that in the Highland um, 550, didn't you? When you came in at the end, three of you rode in together. That's right. Yeah, that was a lovely moment. Yeah. Um, yeah, we'd been out there doing battle. It was like the Hunger Games, the Highland Trail. 550 so it's like it's 550 miles fully self-supported around the highlands of scotland and then at the end of that um there'd been three of us all doing battle with each other and then i don't know it was maybe the fatigue or it was maybe just that you know when when you get pushed right to the extremes of your personality then you start to consider what it is that you value the most but we just all were just like don't really want to brace you anymore should we just ride in together and have a nice time and and that, that's what happened the three of us just rode in you know keeping each other going talking about politics and feminism and education and you know all the all the big sort of issues that affect everyday society it just felt so sort of fitting that we would just let go of our own egos in that moment and just yeah encourage each other to the end it just felt more more important than getting your name on the on the finish board ahead of the other yeah. person. I think those moments are more inspiring than the moments of somebody that's just push, push, pushed. You know, it's not how you survive life, is it? You can strive if you want and beat and win and force your way to the front and you can live a whole life like that, but are you actually going to be happy? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know the answer to that question. I know the answer for me. In answer to a question, what are you most proud of? Mm. Your answer was... My nose for finding hidden single track in any given country and ordering the best dish on foreign menus. Now that's true. That's true. I do seem to have a bit of a knack, even when I can't understand what the letters all mean. I seem to be able just to point and the best thing comes to me. And I think that's something about not holding on too tightly, like not... Um, Worrying too much about what you eat. Well, that too. Maybe it's just that. So what are some of the interesting or unusual things that you've eaten on all of these travels? Because you've been on many, many adventures. Oh, yeah. Well, in Kyrgyzstan, I did develop a real love for fermented horse milk. It's amazing what your body craves, isn't it? Mm. Uh, There was something about it that was just like, it was sort of salty and weird. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I really liked it. But also, interestingly, the best race I ever had when I was cross-country racing was after a meal of deep-fried food in uh, the Czech Republic. Again, we didn't know what we were ordering, but we just pointed at lots of things. 
all of it was deep fried and all of this stuff arrived at my plate. I was like, oh, this isn't what you need before an, an elite race. Mm-hmm. Best race I ever had. Just goes to show. Let go of what you think you know. Lee, it has been really lovely chatting to you and I'm really glad that we've got the rest of the evening to enjoy. You are a genuine inspiration, not just to young people. You're an inspiration to everyone. I actually want to go on a mountain bike now and I'm a middle-aged marshmallow and I don't feel I have to pack my bag on my bicycle with five days of rations. I'm quite happy to put a bottle of wine or whiskey in there and a few nice things to eat. You can come with me then. Should we go on? Should we go, go on, on one? Should we go on a bike adventure? Oh, that would be fun. In a, yeah, an interesting. Just but even even if it's if it's only to the bottom of my track, my goodness me, we could have a ball because we could stuff our packs with food. <laughs> it's not very far. <laughs>